Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to another episode of Tudorifers, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, William Caxton. Mm-hmm. Super excited about this one. Yeah, a proper name that everybody knows. Well, yes. we'll find out in between whether everybody knows him. But... <laughs> yes, printing, printing for our lovely books. But. But. <laughs> we'll start, start with a but. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bear in mind that for virtually every bit of information I give you about Caxton, someone else could come along and say that's not true. Really? Caxton seems to be an incredibly bickery source of study, with each historian slagging the others off <laughs> where they decided he was born or where they where he started printing. Oh, and then goodness. they accuse each other of having pet theories and speculating. Oh, dear. And then they launch into their pet theories and oh, speculations. No. <laughs> Although I do find that I love a good bickering session between scholars. They really get into it. <laughs> they do. But I just thought, though, in two of the books I read had a whole chapter on where he was born. And I thought, does it matter? Does it matter? Yeah. Why? Why does his birthplace matter? We, there, we've got tons of people that we have no idea where they were born, but they still had important, influential lives. <sighs> it's William Caxton, I think. Okay, you know, well, so it'd be like having for... Darwin or somebody like that. That you'd, you'd think, right? We want the, we want the kudos of having having him born at our place. For future reference, I was born in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. I was born in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, as my accent will probably give away. <laughs> born in the home counties. There you go. No confusion. If anybody <laughs> yes. wanted to know. <laughs> oh dear. Well, rather going down the same route. I have made an executive decision that I'm going to choose one and stick to it for each <laughs> argument. Okay. Okay. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. I can't believe we'd have a whole episode just on his birthplace argument. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Well, we're not. We're not. Okay. I'm just. I'm accepting one, and I'm going to stay, say that's where it was. <laughs> but bear in mind, other people have other ideas. Come with me, if you will, to a wind. It seems ages since we've yes. done this. <laughs> Come with me, if been. you will, to a windswept monastery. A lone monk sits in the scriptorium, lovingly transcribing a text onto vellum. He has just finished painting a picture of Jesus on the cross inside the large O at the start of the chapter. A fellow monk comes in, clutching a parcel. Still working, Brother John? He asks. Still working, Brother Jacob? He replies. And then, seeing the parcel, he says. What is that you have there, brother? Books, says Jacob, untying the cloth from around them. Lots of books, he continues, and he throws them one by one on Brother John's lectern. Uh Lots of books, and all exactly the same. (gasps) The end is nigh. Yes. (laughs) I thought you were going to say in thump, his brush goes across the page. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Brother John. Caxton was born in Kent. Okay. We know that. That is that is definite. Because <laughs> he tells us, quote, I was born and learnt my English in Kent in the Weald, where I doubt not is spoken as broad and rude English as is in any place in England, unquote. And as we'll hear, he seems to have a bit of a chip on his shoulder about his origins. Oh. Did they chase him out? No, I don't think they did. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
But they, um, I don't know whether, we don't, we don't hear about him having an accent particularly, but he just seems to be aware that he was born hmm. in the middle of Kent. Hmm. He's not a Londoner. So he's an outsider. I think he feels that. Okay, that makes sense. That's the impression I'm getting. The archives at Tenterden, uh, where it's thought he may have been born, were destroyed by fire when some prisoners who were being held there set it alight. So we can't <laughs> prove whether he was born there or not. Okay. The problem is that Caxton was a very common name in that area. So oh. hence all the speculation. He was born sometime between 1411 and 1422. Okay, so we got an 11-year difference. This discrepancy comes from the fact in 1471 he said he was an old man. So much of the discussion that's taken place is to how old is old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Yeah. When I was growing up, people would say, I'm 72, you know, and, and expect people to be impressed. Now you expect 72-year-olds to be, you know, out on the ski slopes. Or yes. Hang gliding. <laughs> so, yes, we don't know. Caxton learned Greek and Latin as a boy. So he's not some country bumpkin. I mean, whatever his, his he's worries about his origins were. Yes, he's educated. And it's speculated, again, that he may have learned it from the vicar of Tenterton, who was renowned as a very learned man. Okay. And Caxton was not only aware of the shortcomings of his own native dialect, Kentish, but he also felt the shortcomings of English as a whole. He felt it couldn't portray emotions or describe events as French and Latin could. Really? Hmm. Really? Because I find Latin is more concise with less emotion in it. Well, we, we're used to modern English that's collected right. words from all over the world. And we've got Shakespeare, who's given us loads of, yes. loads of more words. We've just got massively bigger vocabulary than he yes. would have done, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Just before Caxton started his education, there was a period of transition. Previously, schools taught him French, and that being the deliberate policy of the Norman kings. But by Caxton's day, schools were teaching in English. However, Caxton became very proficient in French from an early age, so he must have been studying in his spare time. Okay. Right. 24th of June, 1434 is a red letter day for us because that's the first time that we have any information about Caxton that we can be sure is our Caxton. Okay. And it's in the archives of the Mercer's Company of London and states that William Caxton was apprenticed to a merchant, Robert Large. I was thinking Caxton would probably have had to learn London English since the English spoken in the capital and the English spoken in Kent were so different that it was hard for people to understand each other. Caxton tells a story about some Londoners going to Kent and they ask a farmer's wife for some eggies, the London name. Yes. The woman apologises that she doesn't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> and they point, they point to the eggs and she says, Oh, Aaron, why didn't you say so? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that Aaron has got the plural. We only have a few of those plurals now, don't we? Oxen yes. and children. But they used yes. to have a lot more N yes. plurals. The Mercers would have had links to the wool producers of Kent, so that may have given the young Caxton his inroads into his apprenticeship. And the year after Caxton became an apprentice, Alderman Large, Robert Large, became Lord Mayor of London, and they all moved to a mansion house in Old Jewry, 
so-called because it had been a synagogue before the expulsion of the Jews. Oh, mm. And it was a quite full household. There was Large himself, his wife Johanna, four sons, two daughters, eight apprentices, as well as all the servants. Wow. Mm. Robert Large died just three years after Caxton became his apprentice. He left money in his will for his apprentices, ranging from £50 to 20 marks. That's quite a bit of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. The 20 marks went to Caxton, since he appears to have been the youngest. Okay. The book I read said that 20 marks was equivalent to £200, but that book was written in the 70s, so it's worth a tad more now. Yes. And I, I looked it up, actually, because we keep hearing about marks. A pound was equivalent to 240 silver pennies, and a mark was equivalent to 160 pennies, or two-thirds of a pound. <laughs> nice and round numbers. Easy to calculate. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank God for decimalization. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> when a master died, the apprentices were not released from their indentures. The master often named a new master for them in his will. Yeah. Large didn't do this. I don't know, maybe he died more suddenly than he expected. So the executors must have found new masters for the apprentices, and they were obliged to do that by law. But that was not the case with Caxton, and whether that's because he'd been studying French, he was sent abroad instead. Oh, but that's good for him. Oh, yeah, he did well. Except for the hazardous travel, but at the same time, talk about opening your mind by living somewhere not England. Well, yes, he obviously liked it, because he later said he spent 30 years abroad. Oh, wow. And, yeah, he should know. Yes. <laughs> His life. That's <laughs> him. <laughs> he tells us he was in Brabant, Holland and Zealand, which implies that he was on an errand for the Mercer's Company, or whoever had taken over Large's enterprise. But at this time, there was a ban on commercial dealing between England and Burgundy. Right. This was initially due to the Duke Philip of Burgundy, not being informed about the marriage of the Duke of Bedford, John of Lancaster, and Chiquetta of Luxembourg. Right. So a 30-year trade embargo, because Philip was feeling a bit put out, yes. that he hadn't been told. Just that. Only that. That's what I read. There might be more into it, and that perhaps is the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know. No English goods were allowed onto the continent except through Calais. And in fact, the law read, quote, All wools, wolfells, hides, lead and tin and diverse other merchandise passing out of the realm of England, the lands of Ireland, Wales and Berwick-upon-Tweed. <laughs> I love how they're always mentioned separately. Yes. Ought to repair to the staple of Calais and to no other place beyond the sea. That was so that the taxes kept Calais alive. Calais was a very expensive holding to maintain. Oh, it really was. Yeah. So that was to make sure all the money flowed through there so that they could afford to keep it. <laughs> but Caxton later said, quote, In France, I never was. So he hadn't gone to Calais. Sorry, unquote. So he hadn't gone to Calais. Oh. So what was he doing over there? Smuggling? <laughs> That's the word I used. Oh. I didn't come across the S word in any other source. Okay. But for a start, this law, the quote I gave about the law, carried on, quote, a great substance of the merchandise which ought to repair to the said staple, that's Calais, do repair unto Flanders, Holland, Zealand and Brabant, 
without custom or charge, unquote. Now, it seems quite a coincidence that a young man who had been apprenticed to a merchant should then spend many years in Holland, Brabant and Zealand. Hmm. Was he something to do with this great substance of merchandise getting in without custom or charge? And I said, yes. was he effectively a smuggler? <laughs> <laughs> nobody else seemed to have gone down the smuggling route. <laughs> but what, I mean, what else do you call someone who facilitates imports and exports without duty being paid on them? A They're smuggler. smuggler. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a job that leaves much of a paper trail. So Very true. Deliberately. <laughs> Apart from through the courts, and it doesn't, you know, there's no indication of Caxton in that score. So, so he was a good smuggler. He never got yeah, caught. Very good. Yeah. Mm. That might be our revisionist item for today. <laughs> oh my goodness, we're so bad. <laughs> in January 1449, he stood surety for a man accused of owing money. The judge found in favour of the complainant. So Caxton and another man had to pay £110. Which shows that he was already doing very well for himself financially, if he could pay up. And survive paying up. Yes. Wow. And, and agree to the surety in the first place. I mean, he must have known it was a possibility. Yes. 1453, Caxton paid a brief visit to England. And I don't know if it's the only occasion, but it's the one we have information on since he was made a liveryman. What's that? Someone who joins the guild, I think. A liveryman? So we looked it up. A liveryman is a freeman of the City of London entitled to wear the livery of ancient guild or city district to which he belongs and vote in the election of the Lord Mayor, Chamberlain and other municipal honorary officers. How could he be voted in if he hasn't spent any time in England? Yeah, as far as I can make it, I don't know how old he was when he went abroad, but he must have been young if he was the youngest of the apprentices. And since we don't know when he was born, we can't work anything out. <laughs> <laughs> True. That's interesting. It's interesting that he was given that honour, because it's supposed to be an honour, mm. when he didn't live in England. No, but somebody in the Mercer's Guild must have put in a good word for him, I suppose. Yes. Or, or was it that he continued his work in that guild just abroad? So to them... Yeah, but what are you doing? Smuggling. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, he won't be the first person in England to be honoured. He was a smuggler or a pirate, isn't he? Yes, yes. The other thing is he also signed all his property, quote, both real and personal in England and beyond the seas, unquote, over to someone called John Reed. Why? Well, we don't know. It implies <laughs> an attempt to protect his property from seizure. Oh, because he's abroad. Well, I don't know whether it's to do with the business of the man who owed the money. He didn't want his property seized oh. for that. Or whether it's something to do with what he was doing in the lowlands. Gosh, you really have to trust the person you're giving your land to. Yeah. And wait a second. His land's abroad as well? So he has yeah. to be fairly wealthy. Uh, the property abroad. Now, he says later, oh, okay. we, come we come across later, a lot of his property was in books later when he's um, becoming a printer and a translator. But I don't know, could a lot of his property be in the sort of things that he's dealing in? Probably. You get it for wholesale. 
you know what we're doing? We're speculating. Yes, we are. (laughs) While he was in England, there were intimations that Caxton was acting as an intermediary for Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy in some sort of personal deal she was making in England. This isn't our Auntie Margaret. Okay. This is the wife of Philip the Good. But our Margaret comes into it later. Okay. On his return to Bruges, Caxton gained greater links with the Burgundian court. And he seems to have been responsible for buying books and manuscripts because Philip the Good had a very big library. Right. Then there are 10 years where we know nothing about Caxton's life. Of course. We're not even speculating. We know nothing. Sometime around this date, Caxton became governor of the English merchants in Bruges. So it's a, oh. a big office. Mm-hmm. He would have had to live in the Domus Anglorum. And we heard something similar in Jakob Fugger's episode when he lived in a German enclave in Venice. Yes. Well, Caxton's having to live in the English enclave in Bruges. The fact that they put them in enclaves to keep them all separate. Well, it's quite a restriction because there's a curfew. Oh. And women weren't allowed on the premises. Oh. So it's a bit like boarding school, I thought. Yes. Well, he's a smuggler. He'll get them in. Just to put this in a timeline, two years previously, Edward IV had gained the throne following the Battle of Towton. But this should should have made it easier for Caxton, since Edward preferred Burgundy to France. But he did pass legislation to protect English cloth and price foreign cloth out of the market, even though English cloth was generally inferior. So, I don't know, swings and roundabouts there, I think. Mm -hmm. The embargo may be up, but he's pricing them out anyway. Mm -hmm. Caxton was on the up and up. Not only was he well in with Philip the Good, but in 1464, Edward IV issued a commission to, quote, his trusty and well-beloved Richard Whitehill and William Caxton to be his especial ambassadors, procurators, nuncios and deputies to his most dear cousin, the Duke of Burgundy. So Caxton was given the commission to draw up a new treaty between the two countries. Wow. I noticed procurators was one of the things on the list. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps that's what he's doing. He's not smuggling, he's procurating. Yes. Relations were still a bit sticky between the two countries until Charles the Bold took over in 1465. And within two years, a treaty was drawn up restoring trade between England and Burgundy. And Caxton can be given the praise for that. He did most of that. Mm. And he became the personal envoy between Edward and Charles. Part of his job as governor of the English merchants was checking on weights and measures because they were really hot on infringements of weights and measures at this time, didn't they? You hear of bakers selling one loaf yes. that's, that's underweight and the whole of their cart is confiscated. Yes, same with cloth. Cloth was the same way. You put it on tenterhooks to make sure it was the right size. Otherwise, it was confiscated. You lost the cloth. And you were fined. Big fine as well. Caxton was also authorised to settle all disputes between merchants and he could stand in judgment along with the jury. Wow. He also had to supervise the sealing of every parcel that left the city. Interesting. So he's a customs officer. (laughs) It seems to do everything. Yes. Now a good friend of the podcast makes an appearance. Margaret of York. The proper one. Caxton may well have had a hand in brokering her marriage to Charles the Bold. Really? Along with Lord Hastings and Lord Scales. That's Edward Woodville, the toothless one. (laughs) Within a year of her wedding, Caxton was in Margaret's employment. 
and he was now the most influential Englishman in the Netherlands. Wow! Yeah. And he's not of the nobility. No. He wow. comes from Kent. Kent! <laughs> <laughs> he seemed to think that was a bit of a liability. <laughs> he became interested in translating manuscripts, and he said it was, quote, as a preventative against idleness, unquote. Okay. But with all those offices he's doing, I yeah, can't when did you have time? Driven. Yeah, but that is one of those tropes. You know, you always play down whatever you're doing. Right. You know, it's not. It's nothing, nothing important. It's just something I do to while away the empty hours. Yeah. Yes. We also have to keep remembering, this is something that was brought up to me by one of my coworkers, is that we keep talking about how many armies of servants everybody had. So a lot of those duties that we do that take up a ton of our time, cleaning our house, cooking, that kind of thing, is taken up by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. God, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Dreaming for a second. Yes. Hmm. What would I do with all that spare time? I know. <laughs> Where's my books? <laughs> Certainly he translated some things for Margaret, because she was an avid reader. And Caxton had access to the manuscripts that had now become a sizable part of the overseas trade that he was responsible for. Okay. Because he, he's legit now, because it's all it's all above board. <laughs> <laughs> the man, we might get in so much trouble about this. <laughs> <laughs> the Mercers were the main conduit of manuscripts into England. He also became Margaret's secretary and librarian. And Caxton said that what brought them together was a love of literature and a concern for the English language. So they both thought it was you know, a bit dud. Mm -hmm. We'll look at this concern in a bit. Caxton would have hardly seen Charles the Bold, but he had frequent meetings with Margaret of York. And apparently they got on very well. I don't mean inverted commas, <laughs> got on very well. I just mean they did they were just get good on friends. very well. Yeah. Yes, they were. They were just good friends. <laughs> and Margaret wouldn't have seen much of Charles either, so... Probably nice to have someone who spoke English to yes. chat to for a bit. Yeah. It was Margaret who persuaded him to continue his translation of Lefebvre Recoy, the Lefebvre collection. And that's two books, one, one about Jason and one about Troy. Hmm. Caxton had started to translate it into English, but after five or six choirs, he lost heart. And a choir is four sheets of paper or parchment folded to form eight leaves. And as you can tell, I looked that up. <laughs> Oh, just off the top of my head. I think it's four minutes. <laughs> when he told Margaret about it, she told him to put his socks up and get on with it. <laughs> None of your excuses. <laughs> Quote, whose dreadful commandment I durst in no wise disobey, unquote. <laughs> the writer of one of the books I read was surprised that when Caxton is relieved of all his duties, why was he not enjoying all the Burgundian court had to offer? Why was he locked away in a room doing his translations. Yeah. I thought, maybe he was shy. Maybe maybe oh, he yeah. was happier translating. Yes. Not everyone wants to party all the time. No. Or at all. <laughs> yeah, give me a good book. I'll be yes. happy with a good book, please. Thank you. <laughs> Several authors I read said he had an inferiority complex because he came from the world of Kent. <laughs> maybe Kent. he had impos imposter syndrome. <laughs> I mean, who knows? But it is a trope, as we know, to belittle yourself and your achievements. But this obsession that he came from Kent does seem to be a bit more than Bernard Andre's more general sort of everything I do is rubbish thing. 
It's almost like he has a psychological problem with his birthplace. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Although he could do the Bernard Andre trope as well. In his preface to the book, Charles the Great, he writes, quote, I have emprised and concluded in myself to reduce, that means translate, this said book into our English, as all along and plainly you may read, hear and see in this book here following, beseeching all them that find fault in the same to correct and amend it, and also to pardon me of the rude and simple reducing, translating, and though so be there no gay terms, nor subtle, nor eloquence, yet I hope it will be understood, and to that intent I have specially reduced it, after the simple cunning, learning, that God hath lent me, unquote. I mean, would you bother to read it after that? No. <laughs> saying, I've made it quite boring. Yes. Sorry. I did my best. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He was very keen to get Margaret's patronage for the book since he had thought even then of printing it. So right from the moment he was translating it in 1468, he was thinking, I I might be able to print this book. Hmm. So a bit more on Caxton's frustration with the English language. He described French as, quote, compendiously set and written, unquote. And he felt that any translation into English lost a lot along the way. Quote, the rude and old English, unquote. And sometimes they try and oomph the English up a bit by using French or Latin words, but moulding them into an English idiom. Okay. Uh, so it's sort of use merging the three languages to try and give English a bit more kudos. Okay. And I read that he'd also introduced a lot, lot of words into English, but I've searched all over the place. I can't find the words he introduced. Which use? Which words? Yeah, I want to know, but I couldn't find it. And Caxton's English was sometimes criticised. Quote, I have translated this book into English, which is neither too coarse nor too refined, but using phrases which are understandable, God willing. And thus, between plain rude and curious, I stand abashed, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> he's really selling this. <laughs> it's, it's just so he's sitting there thinking, I just don't know what to do. I just, I'd like to just write the plain English, but mm. I don't know, that's so dull. <laughs> How have I put, why don't I put this word? Well, now people won't understand it. And he just seems to be constantly thinking, oh, I don't know, I'm abashed. <laughs> Jeez. The work he translated reflects his own interests, albeit by proxy. The Order of Chivalry, which is a work we'll come across when we look at the Mort d'Arthur, Feats of Arms of Chivalry, and the Noble Histories of King Arthur and of certain of his knights. He berated the youth of England, quote, O ye knights of England, where is the custom and usage of noble chivalry that was used in the past? What do ye now but go to the banyos and play dice? Banyos are either bathhouses or brothels, so leave this, <laughs> leave it, and read the noble volumes of St. Grail, of Lancelot, of Galahad, of Percy Forrest, of Percival, or Gawain, and many more. There ye shall see manhood, courtesy, gentleness, unquote. It might be a heartfelt cry that stemmed from the carnage of the War of the Roses, because mm. there wasn't a lot of chivalry in that. And as we, we've already recorded our episode on the Mort d'Arthur, we know there was very little courtesy and gentleness in that story. Yeah. So it's all, it's all a bit make-believe, mm -hmm. this chivalry thing. Around this time, he gained a new patron for his translation, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers. Oh! And he, yeah, he must have personified everything Caxton believed a knight should be. He was a soldier and a champion jouster, but he was also a poet, scholar, and translator. Hmm. 
He performed in the jousts for Charles and Margaret of York's wedding, where he broke 11 lances, which I presume must be a good score. (laughs) Yeah. That means that they got hit at least 11 times. Gosh, Mm. what a painful thing to do. Yeah, we see a bit of, of their relationship, Anthony Woodfield and Caxton, because we find out what Caxton thinks about women. Uh-oh. And we find that out from a book translated by Anthony Woodville, in which Caxton teases him about the fact that he admitted to bring up that subject, suggesting that some fair lady had desired him to leave it out of his book. <laughs> <laughs> so he's usually quite toadying to his patrons, but this sounds a lot more friendly. Yes. So I think, yeah, there's a better relationship between those two. But how he, how he sees women is, quote, the women of this country be right good wise, pleasant, humble, discreet, sober, chaste, obedient to their husbands, true, secret, steadfast, ever busy and never idle, atemperate in speaking and virtuous in all their work. Or at least should be so, unquote. So, sting in the tail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd never hear the likes of other people doing that. Mm. Like, even... Um, Polydor Virgil was like sycophantic, sickly sweet, until he decided he didn't like the Tudors anymore. Yes. There was no teasing in any way, shape, or form. No. This is this is different. I like it better. We, f- we find out a lot about Caxton's thoughts mm-hmm. in the prologues to the books. He comes across as a more likable person because of it. He does. Yeah. We don't find much about his life in these prologues, but then why would you? I mean, the, these been sent to noble patrons and kings and things they don't want to know what he's up to (laughs) (laughs) it's not your diary (laughs) but we do find his thoughts yeah and his opinions so it's nice yeah and because we don't hear about his life we didn't we didn't know whether he was married or not he never Mm. mentioned a wife and living in the domus anglorum he'd have had little chance of getting a wife unless he smuggled one in obviously (laughs) (laughs) however gairdner the 19th century historian, who's one of the few historians who write about Henry VII's reign, found a document in 1874, and it was a court case between Gerard Crop, a merchant tailor, and his wife Elizabeth, daughter of William Caxton. And it is definitely our William Caxton. Okay. So he had a daughter, so presumably he had a wife. Oh. Unless she's just an acknowledged... Well, they didn't say natural daughter. No. So, yes... The outcome of this case was that, was that the two should live apart, Elizabeth and her husband, and neither should, quote, vex, due, or trouble in each other, unquote. So I don't know what they've been up to. But, yeah, we hope we find, because um, they were bound over for £100 to keep the promise, and Gerard Crop was to, quote, have of the bequest of William Caxton printed legends at 13 shillings, sixpence a legend, unquote. So this implies that much of Caxton's property at this time is in the form of books. Okay. And it's been speculated that Caxton might have married in secret while he was living at the Domus Anglorum. But that's based purely on lack of evidence. It's argued that if he'd married out in the open, there would be evidence. There is no evidence, so he must have married in secret. Which I thought was shaky arguing to me. Yes, because did you scour every church in every city he'd ever been in? Precisely, yes. Yeah, no evidence is not evidence. Yeah. Mm, Don't like that. February 1470, 
Edward IV turned up at the Burgundian court seeking refuge from the machinations of Eola Warwick. And he was in Bruges for five months, so Caxton must have met him at this time and impressed him enough that he was to benefit from his patronage in later years. Right, printing. Let's have a look at printing on the continent. Who invented printing? Not William Caxton. Not William Caxton. No, he just brought it to England. Yeah. It's German. <laughs> I can't remember. Well, I'll tell you and then I can say no because <laughs> it's Gutenberg. Yes, Gutenberg's press. Who invented printing? Gutenberg. No. What? <laughs> it was Lawrence Coster in Holland. What? Gutenberg Press. But his methods and results were pretty awful compared to Gutenberg's. Mm. So Gutenberg gets the credit, although the people of Holland have different ideas. Mm. But I felt, you know, Coster ought to get a name check. I mean, he was he was there before. Yeah. But Gutenberg's printing is still considered stunningly beautiful, which is more than could be said for Costas. <laughs> but people have been experimenting with movable types since 1425. So it had been around. Yeah. It's not as if Gutenberg just suddenly thought, hey, I know, and brought it out of nothing. It was a thing. He might have perfected it, uh. but it wasn't. I always assumed that he, he'd entirely invented it, but no. But he did it so beautifully. He was a goldfish. Goldfish? <laughs> he was a goldsmith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. That's how I'm picturing him for the rest of the, his life. He's a goldfish. <laughs> you got to put that at the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, let's try again. <laughs> Gutenberg was a goldsmith, and so he was able to sculpt all those letters. Because they're all done by hand, obviously. I mean, there's nothing, no other way you could do it. And his Bible was printed in the 1450s. And a couple of copies reached London and were decorated there. There had been block printing before Gutenberg. Block prints of pictures were not uncommon. So, but those weren't movable type. You had the whole thing was carved in one yes. chunk. yes. And they didn't last very long because they were soft. Ah. That was part of the problem. That's one of the reasons why it stayed so expensive at the time. And oh. I learned that through Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. I looked it up to see if he was right, and he was. Yes. Oh, I should imagine he does his homework. Did his yes. homework. Yeah. Do you know what the prime stimulant to block printing was? The item that was printed more than any other. It was not the Bible. Not the Bible. I don't know what it actually was. I can't remember. But I know it wasn't the Bible. The playing card. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Playing cards were a recreation that straddled the classes. Yes. Everyone played cards. Everyone did. And many printing blocks were made to manufacture cards. But these were done secretly since there were several attempts to ban playing cards. Yes, because of gambling. Yeah. I know they did the fourth did, yeah. Same with dice. Given how printing took off, and it is very popular even to this day, apparently, there was a huge prejudice against it at the start. But Gutenberg was not a man to be put off by a little thing like public derision. But if we are to look at a body of men who like to hold back progress at this time, where would we look? Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking specifically of the church. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> 
they had a virtual monopoly on the production of manuscripts. Right, because they were actually making good money having the monks do all that. They weren't really paying the monks. The money went into the entire running of the church. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't just that. The church also wasn't keen for works of literature to end up in the hands of just anyone. Yes. Not just the Bible. Yes. Any works of literature. Yes. And paper had not long been relatively common in Europe, and it wasn't until the 1430s that it was manufactured in Europe, in France. And it wasn't followed up in other countries for a further 50 years. England had its first paper mill in 1494, but it only ran until 1507, outdone by better French paper. So, you know, no paper, no printing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, and the Gutenberg Bible was printed in the 1450s at the same time as Gutenberg was selling all his books to pay off his debts. And part of that must have been the expense of getting enough paper to do the job. All right doesn't always pay to be an innovator. The next character on the printing scene was Peter Schoffer of Mance. He devised a method whereby the characters could be single cast rather than cut out. So oh, so we're getting a... closer to being able to actually change those words to anything. Well, I think, I, I presumed it meant rather than individually carving oh, okay. things like Gutenberg was doing, he must have made a mould mm -hmm. to put them in. But he, sw he swore everyone he told about the process to secrecy, and it stayed secret until 1462 and the sacking of Mance. Mance was sacked by an archbishop. <laughs> <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and he's rather appropriately called Archbishop Adolf. <gasps> mm. oh. Okay, that makes more sense. But then Peter Schoffer's servants all ran off to different countries and the cat was out of the bag because they... Didn't need to keep Stum anymore. And within Stum. four years, <laughs> within four years, presses had been set up in Cologne, Switzerland, Spain, Holland, and Belgium. And it was in Cologne that Caxton first came into contact with the printing press. Unless you talk to some other historians who say something different, but most say Cologne. Okay. And it's sometimes thought that printing must have been more accurate than the manuscript written by a tired monk with poor eyesight in an <laughs> ill-lit monastery. <laughs> But in fact, there was far more scope for mistakes. The compositor, the one who, who set up the letters, yes. had to set the letters back to front and upside down. Yes. And if there were a mistake, that would be there for as many copies as were churned out. Yes. And this was a great worry to humanists, because mistakes in the printing of classical texts would then be spread across the Western world, and so would supersede the original text. Have you ever seen Red Dwarf? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where his... Um, Rimmer's family got a book that was printed wrong, so hop instead of hope. So they hopped right. back and forth to church. It's <laughs> <laughs> just thinking of that in the Middle Ages, because people took things like that literally. They did, yes. <laughs> well, there was the Bible with Thou Shalt Commit Adultery as well, wasn't there? That uh, yes. was very popular. yes. How many of the great thoughts of the ancients have been dissected by the scholars over the centuries and might actually have been misprints in the printed text? <laughs> <laughs> you had to be sure how many copies you wanted of each book because as he finished each page, the compositor would take the page apart to use the letters for the next page. So he couldn't just run off more copies. And that was a problem for printed copies. They would go out of print. If you missed a run of copies, that was it. You've missed your chance to get the book. 
Oh, right. Okay, that makes sense. Because it's not like they're going to just run one off for you because it takes too much time to set it up. But right. there is someone who, who can run one off for you, and that's a scribe. <laughs> yes. So scribes would sometimes be employed copying from a printed text. Oh, could you imagine how boring your life would be if you were just scribing the same book over and over and over again? Well, I, th- I got the impression it was more people would say, look, I've, I want this book. I've just borrowed it off somebody. Can you copy it out for me? And then I, I'll have it. But scribes who'd panicked that the printing press would put them out of business needn't have worried. Because we hear in Dickens about people who jo- whose job it was to transcribe documents, and mainly legal documents. There's a character called Nemo in um, Bleak House, and he's a transcriber. I've never read Charles D- Dickens. What? What? Right. <laughs> Right, turn your computer off and go read Charles Dickens. I'll need to find the book. He's, I think he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Okay. Ah, right, well, that's shocking. That is. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I'm they're sorry. So, they're, they're so funny. They really are. Uh, where do we get to? Um, Dickens. What did it for the scribe wasn't the printing press. It was the typewriter. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Anybody could do it then. Yeah. And it would be legible. Yes. <laughs> huh. I mean, you do still get things which are transcribed. You get a certificate yeah. that's transcribed or um, birth certificate. Huh. Books printed before 1500 were called inconubula. It's because they were sort of new and... Because it was right at the beginning of the, the process of, of printing. so And also because they were made to look like transcribed documents. They even made it look more like a manuscript by do, using rubrication. Uh, sorry, they used what? <laughs> rubrication. Okay. Not lubrication, rubrication. Okay. The first letter of a paragraph was larger and coloured red. Right. Okay. And I know what you're talking about. That would have been left blank in the printing. And then a, a scribe. Oh! Talking about boring jobs. Come and Just the first in, letter. Fill in the first letter of the paragraph. Oh, but you could have fun with that every once in a while. They didn't seem to be illuminated. They were literally just... Yeah. No, I just meant the letter. by changing the letter and changing the word <laughs> right. in the first paragraph. Hmm. Not sure it'd last that long if you did that. Uh, a couple of interesting facts about printing. Italics were based on Petrarch's handwriting. Really? So yep. somebody wrote slanted and that's where they decided to make it italics. Hmm. That's cool. And letters were stored in different cases. With the capital letters being stored in the upper case and the little yes. letters being stored in the, in the lower, lower case. case. Yes, yes, I knew that part. <laughs> the look of the library changed after printed books took off. Because a large library of manuscripts would have contained around you know, several hundred texts. A large library of printed books would have thousands. And before, the library would, would have consisted of a series of lecterns, so people would have read these uh, beautiful illuminated manuscripts on a lectern. But with paper books, they could be stood upright on shelves, much like we see them now. I want somebody to give me an illuminated manuscript. <laughs> I can't afford okay. one. Oh, well, I missed your birthday this year, so... <laughs> Unfortunately, the owners of libraries would sometimes throw out the old manuscripts. You know, they, they've got printed ones now, nice shiny printed ones. Mm. Right, back to Caxton. So that's 
brief diversion through printing. Caxton was middle-aged before he became a printer. He was in his 40s. Really? Yeah, because we always think of him as the printer. Yes, like his entire life. Yes, no, only part of his life was printing. Ha! At the, at the end of the third book of Caxton's translations of the histories of Troy, he said, quote, I have practised and learned at my great charge and expense to ordain this said book in print, after the manner and form, as you may here see. And it's not written with pen and ink, as other books are, to the end that every man may have them at once, unquote. So that was his mission, that every man should be able to get their hands on books. I like that bit about, and it's not written with pen and ink, as other books are. It's all sort of, <laughs> look at it. <laughs> and we don't know for certain where and when Caxton learned how to print. This may have been quite a cloak and dagger business. The people of Harlem actually imprisoned people who came there to, as they would see it, steal the secrets of printing. <laughs> and there's a story that's long believed to be apocryphal, but we'll go for it anyway. It might have a kernel of truth, you never know that Caxton and another man were sent to Holland with a thousand pounds from King Edward, which they spent on bribes and backhanders. And then they petitioned the king to send them 500 more. And eventually they persuaded a print worker named Cosilis to leave his workmates under the cover of darkness and sneak into a ship that they had waiting. <laughs> and he was whisked over to England, but it's thought that London wouldn't be safe, so he was taken to Oxford under guard and held there until he taught them the art of printing. What seems more likely, though, is that Caxton just rocked up in Cologne and said, I'd like to learn printing, please. And they said, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> he found a man who could provide the movable type and then he returned to Bruges and set up his own press. Huh. Wait, in Bruges? Back in Bruges, yes. Oh, so he didn't bring it to England right away. Not yet. No, we're not there yet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, no, no. This is not the way this goes. First, he's doing it when he's, like, 20, and he's doing it in England, in Kent. I'm choosing Kent. <laughs> <laughs> nope, none of them. None of them. Huh. Also, he gained the patronage of Margaret of York to print the Histories of Troy, which was the first book printed in the English language. The second book was The Game and Play of the Chess Moralised, which he dedicated, rather bizarrely given the circumstances, to George, Duke of Clarence. What? Maybe Caxton felt he was in need of a few morals, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you are a bad person. But George was the, apparently the favourite of Auntie Margaret. So it seems weird, but then you look at what yes. the choices were and you think... So maybe Caxton was trying to curry favour with her. That makes more sense than... Yeah. We actually mm. don't know much about George. For all we know, he was a very good guy and he saw that his brother was a wastrel. No, I've read a book about George. Oh, no. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you think about him is true. Oh, dear. His main assistant in Bruges was... Terry Pratchett. Wink and a word. Wink and a word. Oh. <laughs> Isn't he and Terry Pratchett? He is, but they were not assistants in any way, shape or form. Ah, when he was a loyal servant of Caxton and came with him to London. So huh. I, think, I, I think we might do a cameo on him. There's certainly huh. a fair amount of information on him. 
more than Caxton that's actually the printers in William DeWard in William DeWard's oh which book is that hold on ah yeah so it's Terry Pratchett's book The Truth and William Mm -hmm. DeWard is basically a newspaper person all right and the printing press operators are dwarves Oh, okay. So not an assistant in any <laughs> way, shape, so or he's, form. And he's called William DeWord, is he? William DeWord, De yeah. yeah. I think it's I think it's Vincent DeWord or something, but I put, put it on um, Google Translate and it just spelt out Vincent. It didn't, it didn't <laughs> try and say it. <laughs> so what was Caxton printing? Apart from literary works, he printed statutes for sale to lawyers, vocabularies, phrase books, Works for the use of the clergy and, of course, indulgences. What? Oh, right. Yes. Right. He concentrated on books in English and translated from French, so they would have only been interest to people in England. They wouldn't have the universal appeal of books in Latin, which must be one hell of a risk. Really. Yes. But that's what he decided to do. He didn't just print in English. Out of all the books he printed over his lifetime, 68% were in English, 28% were in Latin, and 4% were in French. Hmm. But, I mean, that's quite a, quite a risk. Right, here you go. In the autumn of 1467, <sighs> Caxton moved back to England. Okay, finally. <laughs> you are now old and you are far too late for me to think of you <laughs> as a printer. <laughs> Whether that was for commercial reasons or whether it was because there was a decline in trade with England and the Low Countries and relationships had taken a nosedive again, we're not sure. The following year, Charles the Bold was killed in battle and had his face eaten away by wolves again. And then the French annexed Burgundy, so it was a good time for Caxton to leave. (laughs) Run! (laughs) Yes. In the book called Caithon, he wrote, quote, Unto the noble, ancient and renowned city, the city of London, I, William Caxton, citizen and conjury, not sure what that means, of the same, owe of right my service and goodwill. In my young age, much more wealthy and prosperous and richer, that's a bit of tautology there, than it is at this day. He's talking about London there, not himself. The cause is that there is almost none that intendeth to the common weal, but only every man for his singular profit, unquote. Bit of a closet communist as well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I suppose everyone says that. It was it was lovely in my day. We, we could leave our doors open. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, look at it now. Everybody says, every generation says that the next generation sucks too. Yes. Yes. And they do. No manners. No. Just sitting looking at their screens all day. Mind you, I've yeah. got two screens open here. My phone, <laughs> Me too. My phone's over there. <laughs> I have two gigantic screens in front of me right now. <laughs> so did Caxton set up his presses in England purely for mercenary motives, that he thought he'd make a fortune out of it? Or was he, well, I thought he might be like those people who make a packet in the city and then feel quite burnt out and then move to the country to become Thatchers or to open an organic deli or something. But it seems unlikely that Caxton could have banked on making his fortune. Both Costa and Gutenberg had got horribly into debt. It was a very risky business. And Caxton may have thought that if he had the monopoly on printing England, how could he fail? But there were plenty of other printers who could show him precisely how he could fail. (laughs) 
Yeah, being at the front forefront of technology means taking risks, because there'll be a lucky few, but most will fall by the wayside. I was thinking about all those dot-com businesses that went under. It must have been a similar situation when printing uh, yeah. first started. Everybody jumps on thinking mm. this fat, but how could it people not? Fall off? Yeah, but everybody wants to read, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> <laughs> no, I really don't think they do. <laughs> Apart from the cost of setting up the press in the first place, just finding enough paper was a nightmare and a huge expense. So if there were books left unsold, that could easily mean bankruptcy. Oh, goodness. And Caxton didn't have the monopoly because books were being imported from the continent in their thousands. Maybe not in English, but Latin and French. Mm. But where Caxton was different was that he had been a mercer as well as a printer, so he was used to looking for markets. Right. Other printers may have just churned the stuff out and then looked for people to buy them. Whereas he's finding people to buy them before he starts churning the book out. That seems to be the case, yes. That seems to be the more safer way to do things. Yes, I mean, that's how you'd think, obviously, but then that is how business is done now. Yes. Not necessarily how it's done then. True, true. He didn't waste any time since the first printing he did was dated December of the year he set up his press. And that was a letter of indulgence issued to John Langley and his wife by John Sante of Abingdon. Oh! Yeah. I find it extraordinary reading through these books now because these names keep leaping out. I think, oh, we've done an episode on him, we've done an episode on him. (laughs) They're in the box. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the earliest example of printing in England. A letter of indulgence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit disappointing, isn't it? But Caxton started with small items like this, and that may be why he avoided the financial disasters of the other printers. Yeah. He had to cut corners too. His early printings are not very pretty to look at. In one work, he used 130 different types of paper due to the difficulties of getting his hands on the stuff. Right. How would you find a supplier that was consistent? Hmm. Hmm. He was short of typecasts, the actual letters, so sometimes he'd leave a gap. But unlike Bernard Andre, he'd actually get a scribe to fill it in. Hmm. He used I and Y indiscriminately because of the shortage of letters. For the same reason, he'd sometimes leave the last E off words. And he didn't use punctuation. Was punctuation invented by then? Like full punctuation? I know it was developed over time. Hmm. Ooh, that's another another episode coming on now in the history of punctuation. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, maybe it's I'll have a look on the um History of English Language podcast, which is brilliant, by the way. Everyone yes. should listen to it. Um, he must surely have done an episode on that. Hmm. I'll look it up and put a link to it if, they've, if he's done one. Okay. Initially, Caxton didn't justify the page. In other words, he didn't make the left and right margins straight as we have them in books now. Why do we do that? Just neater. Sorry, that's squirrel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But when he did, he was quite happy to add an extra letter or to take one away if it would level up the margins. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's it's hard to say. It's been said that printing standardised English. No. <laughs> no, because the spelling was subservient to the look of the page. <laughs> and that wow. explains why, why you can get two or three different spellings in the same book. You think, well, surely 
Surely you know how to spell it. You've chosen. You've cho- you've made a choice. But no, oh, it didn't dear. fit on the didn't fit on the line, so it took that letter out. <laughs> in about 1482, Caxton set up shop in Westminster Abbey under the sign of the Red Pale. And I'm not sure. I looked up what the sign of the Red Pale would have looked like, but I couldn't find anything. And this made sense because there were already bookstalls there. Caxton had an actual bookshop where he sold the works he printed. I've, I hadn't ever really thought of bookshops being around at this time. No, not at all. Mm. I assumed it was just a printing works and then they would go off and be distributed by somebody. But no, he had a bookshop. Really? Mm. There had been confusion about its whereabouts in Westminster, but it's now thought to be at the East End near where Chaucer lived, and Chaucer's house was still standing when Caxton started his press. And apparently it's where the statue of King George V now stands. So if you want to look for it, go and stand and pay your tribute to Caxton. That's where it, where it was. And it's interesting he, he should choose to set up in Westminster, since the church had such strong views about the ungodliness of printing, calling it, quote, the contraption of the devil, unquote. But obviously the church had mellowed since then, or at least the Abbot of Westminster had. <laughs> Wait, they had the swans. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> becoming more liberal? Um, <laughs> what are you allowing now? <laughs> since you have swans. And by swans, well, we mean women of ill repute. <laughs> yes. They didn't run the brothels. They only took took the rents. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's all fine. <laughs> and setting up in Westminster did protect him from any other slurs the church may throw at him, because he'd say, look, I'm in Westminster, it's got to be all right. Also, Westminster was not under the jurisdiction of the City of London, and the Guild of Stationers was very powerful in the city, and they were made up of scriveners and transcribers who had a lot to lose from this new fangled printing malarkey, or at least thought they did. And if Caxton had set up within the city, they could have made life very difficult for him. And there's another reason why being in Westminster proved quite useful, and we'll come to that in a while. One of the first books he printed in England was a book of hours, probably the first prayer book to be printed in England. And it's quite specific, this book, because the prayers are to the three kings of Cologne and to St. Barbara. So they were probably commissioned for Cologne merchants from the Hanseatic League. Otherwise, why would they choose choose those particular saints? I didn't realise that with you, if you've got a book of hours, you can sort of customise the saints to suit suit your own whims. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know which saints I'd choose. Caxton only had two years in which he could claim the accolade of the only printer in England. From 1484, several started springing up. But Caxton remained for some time the only printer who printed books in the English language. And actually having these other printers breathing down his neck made Caxton up his game a bit. That's when he started justifying the margins and making it look better. (laughs) (laughs) Not taking out letters of words. (laughs) But the other printers were in London, Oxford and St Albans. So all of them were down south. So the southern dialect prevailed in printed English in written Hmm. English for quite some time. Hmm. Still does, really, I suppose. Another reason for Caxton's success was that he was a quiet, studious, friendly man who didn't antagonise anyone. 
That's that's very different from anybody else we've had so far. Yes. And it does make a difference. Yes, it does. <laughs> he counted amongst his friends the Earl of Warwick, Sir John Fastolf, whose name must surely have inspired Shakespeare, and William Dobney, the father of the ubiquitous Giles. Oh, who shows up all over the place and I always get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> also, I noticed he translated from the Latin and printed the Declamation of Noblesse, which was written by a certain Mr. Tiptoft, the Earl of Worcester, oh. and the Butcher of England. <laughs> and I read that Tiptoft brought Caxton books to print, but since he was executed in 1470, it seems highly unlikely, since Caxton probably wasn't even printing at that time. <laughs> yeah, this is so messing with my head. <laughs> but Caxton wrote of Tiptoft that, quote, none was his peer, he excelled in, in virtue and cunning, Unquote. Cunning meaning knowledge. And we'll be doing a cameo on Mr. Tiptoft in our next episode. In 1483, King Edward IV died and Caxton lost an important patron. And in a well-known story, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, met Anthony Woodville at Stony Stratford and after spending a convivial evening with him, had him arrested the following morning. He was taken up to the north where he was tried, if that's the word and sentenced by Henry Percy, and then he was executed. So that's another important patron that Caxton has lost. Mm. Elizabeth Woodville and her children sought sanctuary in, in Westminster, very close to where Caxton was. But with his Woodville links, Caxton must have felt a little nervous at this time. This wouldn't be early modern history if there weren't a bit of subterfuge. It's thought that meetings may have taken place under the sign of the Red Pale. Anti-Richard meetings. And these speculations are based on the fact that after he came to the throne, Henry VII made various payments to Caxton and sought his advice on several matters, implying that he had helped some of Henry's followers. Although I'm pretty sure that Caxton wasn't printing subversive leaflets or anything like that, because he'd have been risking his business doing yeah. that. He, he could have lost everything. But maybe he could get away with what he, he did do, if indeed he did do it, which is more speculation, because he was within the sanctuary of Westminster. Oh, wait. He wasn't in the buildings of Westminster, but he was within the boundaries of sanctuary. So he could claim sanctuary. He could claim sanctuary. Huh. And he had links to Margaret Beaufort, so it's not entirely unlikely that he was holding these meetings. <laughs> He also had links to the other Margaret, though, Margaret of York, closely. Ooh, how did he manage that? Well, that's it. That's. I saw speculation that Caxton might have been intriguing against Margaret of York in favour of Henry, but I just couldn't see it myself. Because while Edward IV was on the throne, Caxton was doing all right out of the monarchy, and there'd have been no need to plot. And by the time Richard came to the throne, Caxton was already in England, so he probably didn't have the same links that he had before with Margaret of York. So I didn't. I couldn't see that. When Richard became protector, Caxton was in the middle of printing The Golden Legend, which was a hagiographical work, but now he was in a quandary. He couldn't postpone the printing or he'd lose money, and yet, in the political turmoil, was now the time to start bringing out new publications. It might be difficult to find new patrons at this time when everything was up in the air. Luckily, the Earl of Arundel apparently just wandered into Caxton's shop one day, and when he heard that the Golden Legend might not be published, he agreed to pay for several copies. Oh! Yeah, he just ambled in. Hello, I'm going to give you lots of money. <laughs> well, he also offered Caxton, quote, 
the gift of a buck in summer and a doe in winter, unquote. I don't know wow. what that means. Oh. Is that literal? That's got to be literal. So a male deer in the summer and a female deer in the winter. So it's literal. It's not a phrase. I assumed it was some sort of phrase that it was, you know, not in the wink. I'll give you. Oh, maybe it is literal. Yeah. I was looking back, looking for the phrase all over the place. I just found a lot of stuff about deers. So maybe it is literal. You did say a buck in the summer and a doe in the winter or vice versa? Uh, buck in the summer, doe in winter. Yeah. So that's normal hunting time for those because you don't want to take out a doe in the summer because she's got babies she needs to take care of. So you take yeah. out the, the bucks and then doe is later. Right. Oh, I've been trying to read all sorts of things into that phrase. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In 1483, he also printed The Knight of the Tower, which had been commissioned some years earlier by, quote, a noble lady with daughters, unquote. Well, that could be anyone, but the noble lady is almost certainly Elizabeth Woodville. But he was hardly likely to say so in the circumstances, since she was in sanctuary just next door. Yeah. And he had to be quite circumspect about naming his patrons. Especially if one was Margaret Beaufort and the other one was Margaret York. You really yes. don't want to say, hey, ladies. And the other one's Elizabeth Woodville. Oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. Well, in the original translation of The Curial, Caxton dedicated it to Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers. In the 1483 printing, the Earl's name was missed off. But in the book printed in 1489, it was safe to put Woodville's name back on again. And when he printed Charles the Great in Henry VII's reign, he included the name of the patron, William Dobney, but referred to him as Treasurer of the Jewels of Edward IV, making no mention of any of the positions he'd held under Richard III. Safe? It's, it's, you walk a tightrope, don't you? Yeah. And during Richard's reign, Caxton didn't name his patrons in his book, but referred to them in a way that if you knew them, you'd recognise them. <laughs> Which isn't safe anyway. That's not really safe. Well, I suppose he's got the got the point where he could say, no, I didn't mean him. No, I meant Fred Bloggs, who lives down the road. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. You have that out, I suppose. Hmm. In 1484, he printed The Subtle Histories and Fables of Aesop, which he had translated from French. And it occurred to me, this must have meant that all those phrases came into our language through Aesop. It must stem from this printing. Not necessarily, because some of the phrases did come from morals, and the morals weren't put on till later. Yeah. You might well get things like sour grapes, honesty is the best policy, pride comes before a fall, don't make a mountain out of a molehill, to take the lion's share, don't count your chickens before they hatch, look before you leap, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, one good turn deserves another, birds of a feather flock together, out of the frying pan, into the fire. Wow. And those all come from Aesop's tales, and it was Caxton who translated and printed them brought them to an English audience. Cool. Yeah. That legacy is still going on now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Neat. Hmm. One that April with his sure sorter, the drocht of March hath pierced to the rotor and bathed every vein in switch liqueur of which vertu engendered is the floor, etc., 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 
the most famous book that Caxton printed, The Canterbury Tales. Yeah. <laughs> Caxton was a huge fan of Chaucer. Quote, Great thanks, Lord and Honour, ought to be given unto the clerks, poets and historiographs that have written so many noble books on the wisdom of the lives, passions and miracles of the holy saints of histories or noble and famous acts. He's a great lover of the rule of three, is Caxton. <laughs> And of the chronicles since the beginning of the creation of the world unto this present time, amongst whom, and especial before all other, we ought to give a singular lord unto that noble and great philosopher Geoffrey Chaucer, the which, for his ornate writing in our tongue, may well have the name of a laureate poet, unquote. <laughs> With saucy content. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Caxton wanted to establish Chaucer as the father of the English language. Because yeah, when I went to school, we did a fervent exam. We did a Canterbury tale and two Shakespeare's. But they don't do that anymore, sadly. Well, I was in a different type of English class, and we did Chaucer and a bunch of mm. Shakespeare. They don't do mm. it anymore? No. Mm. They, 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 they don't seem to do whole books at all now. They seem to do anthologies of bits of books. Well, there's several books that I had to read for English that I wish I never had. They're absolutely horrible. They should have come with, like, mental health warnings. Oh, right. Before Ooh. you read them. Oh, which were they? Animal Farm. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Animal Farm. Yeah. I looked on a website of Christie's, the auction house. A William Caxton printing of the Canterbury Tales was sold in 1998 for £4,621,500. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Wow. Caxton wouldn't have dared print a Bible in case he fell foul of the authorities and was accused of lollardy. And also, if there'd been any possibility that the authorities might have banned it, he'd lose money. <laughs> but he got round this by adding stories from the Bible to the Golden Legend. So, yeah, he did a bit. Probably the most popular of Caxton's translations was the history of Reynard the Fox. I remember we, we mentioned in the Northern Renaissance episode that the first printing in Holland was Reynard the Fox. Yes. It's very popular. Caxton put a disclaimer in the prologue, quote, if anything be said or written herein that may grieve or displease any man, blame not me, but the fox, for they be his words and not mine, unquote. <laughs> so it looks as if you... Don't blame me! <laughs> <laughs> ...walking on eggshells during Richard III's reign. Many nobles apparently asked Caxton why he'd taken so long to print a book about King Arthur. And he replied that he hadn't before believed in King Arthur, but that, quote, one in special said that there were many proofs of his existence, unquote. And that had convinced him. And the one in special could well have been Sir Thomas Mallory, who wrote Le Morte d'Arthur. And Caxton was usually quite a straightforward translator. He rarely fiddled with the actual content of the piece because he had too much respect for Chaucer and the other authors. However, he seems to he did a, quite a hatchet job on Mallory. <laughs> He, um, for a start, apparently he took out all the crude language. What's wrong with that? <laughs> well, he may have no, thought he'd put people off printing. <laughs> he also printed a history of Britain called The Brute, after Brutus, presumably. Okay. <laughs> he arrived here after the Trojan War, and Caxton took the original source and finished it, taking it up to Edward IV's time. Right, the description of Britain. I have a copy of it here. It's not, it's not an illuminated manuscript. 
Oh, there it is. Picked it up in a charity shop. Very cool. nice. It is illuminated, and it? it does have pictures, illustrated at least. Caxton printed it in 1480, and it's quite interesting. Caxton didn't write it, but he picked the best bits out of the Polychronicon, which had been translated from the Latin. And that's many stories, Polychronicon. It is all about the history and geography of Britain. And the book starts off, quote, As Geoffrey of Monmouth says... Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> no. I'm out of it right at the beginning. <laughs> This island is called Albion, after Albina, the Emperor Diocletian's eldest daughter, who had 32 sisters, unquote. So that's a good start. <laughs> In fact, Geoffrey of Monmouth mentions the country is called Albion, but doesn't give any etymology for it. Diocletian only had one daughter, and we don't know her name, so she oh. obviously didn't have 32 sisters. So the first sentence is complete rubbish. Yeah, well, Geoffrey of Monmouth. <laughs> well, it wasn't his fault on this occasion. He just said it was called Albion. The book goes on to say that others say that it's called Albion because of the White Cliffs, presumably the White Cliffs of Dover, which makes a lot more sense. But then it goes and ruins it all by saying something stupid like, quote, the Saxons conquered this country and called it Anglia from being like an angle or corner of the world, unquote. I don't think so. Mm. Or it's because St. Gregory saw English children for sale in Rome and thought they looked like angels. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And if you want to know why Wales was so called, quote, Wales is now called Wallia. And if you take the name of Lord Gwalon and remove the first consonant and the ending, adding Leah, you will get Wallia, such a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to make you fit. <laughs> yeah, and there's a certain amount of bias, I felt, because there's a chapter called The Marvels and Wonders of Wales. And there's another one called Ireland's Deficiencies. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, the poor Irish. Yeah. But Caxton's business acumen didn't let him down since the description of Britain was terrifically popular. I think maybe we could do a special episode on this book because it might, might give us insight into how people of the time yeah. saw the history of Britain. Yeah. And it's quite a good laugh. Yeah. Bits, bits I've read of it. <laughs> <laughs> Right, now we're in Sir Henry VII's reign, and Caxton presented Virgil's Aeneas to Prince Arthur, who was only four years old. So he probably didn't read it there and then. And as we've heard in Bernard Andre's episode, that um, Arthur only skimmed through books anyway. <laughs> <laughs> in later years, Caxton had two main patrons, John de Vere and Margaret Beaufort. And it may well have been Margaret who plugged Caxton's books around the court. And he translated Blanchardin and Eglantine for her in 1489, which is some sort of um, chivalric romance. Mm. Also in 1489, Caxton printed The Governor of Health. It's not a particularly good book. It's a patchwork of quotes from Greek and Arabian sources with a bit of homespun wisdom thrown in. But it was the first medical book in the English language and was another bestseller because it was one of the ones you'd keep at home to look up. Ah. You know, so-and-so's fallen down and yes. <laughs> not, not the top of his head off. What should I do about it? <laughs> and since there are no doctors, or the doctors yeah. might kill you, it's good to know yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. And at this time, he's also printing statutes for Henry VII, and he printed a book called Fifteen O's for Margaret Beaufort. And that's a prayer book in which every prayer begins with O. I'm not quite sure if it's 
that each prayer starts, oh, Lord. Lord, yes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Or whether it's octopus, orangutan, <laughs> owl. <laughs> For some reason, I can only think of animals. <laughs> In the 14 years that Caxton had a press, he printed more than 18,000 pages and 80 books. Wow. Over time, his assistants, including Wink and Word, or Wink and Word, took over the actual printing, leaving time for Caxton to devote to translation. In fact, few or none of those who actually worked the press were English. They all came over from the continent. Really? Wow. Caxton translated at least 21 books from French and at least one from Dutch, and that was Reynard the Fox. Good for him. In 1490, a Maud Caxton died and was buried nearby. She could have been Caxton's wife. Or she could have had nothing to do with him whatsoever. We don't know. (laughs) We have no idea who she is, but we we saw them in a room together once. (laughs) Possibly that. Possibly she was a completely different arm of the family. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. As Caxton reached the end of his life, he didn't ease up the pace. He was even looking for a long-term backing from the court. According to Vincent de Verde, who took over the business... Caxton had just finished translating Lives of the Fathers when he died, either in late 1491 or early 1492. We don't even know when he died. <laughs> he was around 70. Wow, good for him. De Verde printed the book, adding the words, quote, translated out of the French into English by William Caxton of Westminster, late dead, and finished it at the last day of his life, unquote. Without Caxton, English literature might have been set back 50 years. And yet, possibly if Caxton hadn't done it, somebody else would. He didn't invent printing. Correct. And we all think, oh, Caxton, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's because we're looking at it from the English perspective. Yes. (laughs) The technology was already there on the continent, so anyone could have brought it over. But would they all have insisted on doing so much in English? That might not have been the case. True. And they may not, they, well, they wouldn't have been doing the translations. Translating yeah. two languages is quite a feat. Mm. So mm. I think, I think the boy done good. Yes, I think he did good too. Should we read him then? This one's going to be a little bit difficult because I didn't get a feel for his personality really. Except for the joking with his. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I quite like the bit about. If you don't like the book, then blame the fox, not me. Yes, yeah, very true. He's quite a jokey character, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, I guess that's a lot more personality than we get from some of these people. Yes. Quite often you get to the end and you think, I don't know you at all. Yes. (laughs) I know what you did. Yeah. I don't know you. Yes. Let's rate him. Amphibily. If he was allowing those anti-Richard meetings at his shop, then his intriguing could be seen as quite high. But there's no proof of this. I want to give him maximum marks because he managed to be friendly with both Margaret of York and (laughs) Margaret Beaufort. I don't know how you could do that and survive. Unless he left Margaret of York behind when he Mm -hmm. came to England and had nothing more to do with her. Possibly. But yes, it is quite an interesting selection of people he knows. Yes. Because he was working for both. Yeah. Not just friends. He was working for them both. Yeah, that's true. I think that's worth a mark or two. Yeah. And you're right. He was putting books with the, <laughs> I don't know, with the with the backup plan of having 
of being in sanctuary. Yeah. He was taking risks. I, I suppose the biggest risk he was taking was keep, keeping his patrons, but not saying who they were. Yeah. Mm. Which could upset the patron. Not just... You're, Would you're it, really balancing something there. You're balancing keeping the patron, because usually part of them being a patron is that everybody knows they're your patron. <laughs> yes, that's true. But and, um, some of the patrons were dead by this point. So, yeah. And he was still saying, he is my patron. You know, that one with the long nose and the red hair and the and the corns on his feet or something. <laughs> and if people <laughs> would know them, would say, oh, I know, it's, it's um, Anthony Woodfield. But if you didn't know him, you wouldn't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, we're walking a fine line. Yeah. D- definitely higher than zero because he was. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe everybody had to walk a line at this, that time because everything was changing so quickly. But his is so very public. Yeah. He's printing these books and he's sending them out. Mm. And yes, you could say, well, I'm only giving them to people I trust. But who do they trust that they'd loan the book to? Well, and you're selling the book. You want, you want to sell it to as many people as you can. Yes. So you don't know. It is mm. quite a risk. The more I think about it, the more of a risk it is. Yes. I'm going to give him a seven. Okay. I don't think I'll go quite that high. I think I'll go with a five. Okay. Which is actually actually higher than I was expecting. Twelve. I was thinking of um, something considerably less than that to start with. Antiperistasis. Well, he was born to fairly ordinary family in Kent, we presume. Certainly not noble. I mean, he wasn't a peasant or anything. He learned Greek and Latin. But as he went along, he picked up noble patrons, including royalty. But- but his status didn't really change. His specific... He became the most influential man in Holland. Englishman in Holland. Yes. But he didn't stay there. Maybe this people, is some hard. people Yeah, maybe some people would have seen becoming a printer as being a step down. Yes. Because he didn't... When he moved back to England, he would have lost that influence. Yes, and he is effectively still a, a merchant, I suppose, in that he sells things. Yeah. Which is what he was apprenticed to be in the first place. Yes. Maybe not a great amount then. I'm thinking a one. Oh. I think I'll go for higher than that because he had he had fame, I suppose. People knew him. People who were patrons would know him and they were very high up. Well, I suppose they'd know their own servants, wouldn't they? So yeah. it's not necessarily the case. Huh. Well, I'll go for a two, I think. Okay. One, one seems too little for somebody who was the first printer in England. Yeah, but that's the team. <laughs> yeah. So three. Martyrdom. Well, not really, apart from he risked his money in a dot-com business, really, didn't he? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> <laughs> but was that lucky or savvy? I mean, it paid off. Financial martyrdom? Mm. I might give him one for... For taking the risk? Taking the risk. Okay, I will give him a one as well. <laughs> That's a two for martyrdom. Beating. Massive ten. <laughs> he brought printing to England. He's one of the most famous people we've done so far. Yes. If not the most famous, at least in England. Yes. If you scroll down, if you go onto Amazon, and obviously other online book dealers are available, 
You'll see many of his books are still in print, not just the Mort d'Arthur, but the Golden Legend, the Book of Courtesy, the Dicts and Sayings of the Philosophers, the Game and Playing of Chess Moralised, that he dedicated to George Duke of Clarence, and even Margaret Beaufort's 15 O's are available. Yeah. Cool. Also, there are a number of books meant for children about Caxton, and you can't imagine a children's book about De Puebla or Dobney no. or Bernard Andre. Dudley and Empson. Behave or Dudley and Empson will get you. That's where yes. that book would be. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm giving him a 10. Biggest we've done, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 10. 10, 10, 10. 20 for a bit team. Flaunt a bleeding flaunt. I have got a picture of him. I forgot to send it to you, but if you if you type up, it's it's the one you will see everywhere. Oh, green hat. A hat. He's got a beard, and that is not what he looks like. That's, that's not what that's, like. a, that's a guess. Somebody has painted has drawn that much much later. And yet, if you get anything about Caxton, that's the sort of picture that will be shown, because there was no pictures of him. So. People seem to have decided that's what he looks like. But you'll find lots of pictures like that of him bearded in a floppy mm-hmm. hat. And I don't, I, as far as I know, it's just a conception of what a printer at that time would have looked like. Okay. I might give him a couple for having an image. Yeah. Because a lot of people seeing that would say, oh, that Caxton. Yes. Because that's what he's come to look like. Yeah. I'm going to give it a two. Yeah, I think you two. Two, two, four. Thirty-two, thirty-five, thirty-nine. Yeah, thirty-nine. Yes, thirty-nine. Um, that's a pretty good score. Yeah. Yeah. Next question. Are they too delicious or what? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah? I think so too. Yes. He brought books to England in a cheap format. Yes, he deserves it. <laughs> this is from a book lover. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading about him because it was, it was different. I got to learn about Mr. Printing. I was going to do a thing on Renaissance books and then I realised that is a massive... <laughs> oh, that would be so big. <laughs> Yes, that's that's not a that's not a rabbit hole. That's a that's an episode. <laughs> so yes, yes, well done, yeah, Caxton, yeah, it's really good. I'm pleased, pleased about that. And also, I liked him. I liked his comments to um, Anthony Woodville and his thing about the fox. Yes, and to George. Right, who's the... next? Who, Who is next? Is next. Okay. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Princess Margaret Tudor. Oh, about time we haven't had either of those. <laughs> yes. <have> we? <laughs> we haven't had her or Mary. Oh, this is going to pull in Scotland. We're going to go to Scotland. We're back to Day Ayala. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this will be good. This will be good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right, yes, that would be something different again. Yes. Brilliant. And we've been in England for a long time now, apart from Caxton, who was, was away for 30 years. <laughs> but we were. Yeah. And we're going a nice change to head off to Scotland. It's a beautiful place. Oh, love to go. 
So thank you very much for listening. That is the end of our episode on William Caxton. We hope you have enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Mort to Arthur. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on In the meantime, to be a well-favored man is a gift of fortune, but to write and read comes by nature. Write till your ink be dry, and with your tears, moist it again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Set upon adventures, and he went abroad. Hmm. He smuggled cargo despite the embargo. He'd become a bureaucrat. Now, Margaret's employee was her office boy. Was it any more than that? No, no, it wasn't. At the sign of the red pill, we don't know the detail. He set up his shop. Okay. Lots of trees and a man for all seasons. He was always for the shop. That was never proven. Taught it to do tricks. No, you're just being silly. Invented Lego, sang falsetto, strangled puppies for kicks. Are you deranged? This will never get past peer review.